0: Welcome to the Political Monitor Podcast, brought to you by the Concord Monitor. In this week's show, we run down a full day of campaigning from Ben Carson, Donald Trump, and Jeb Bush with the reporters who covered the stories. My name's Clay Wirestone. I'm a writer and editor at The Monitor, and in today's podcast, I'm joined by our political editor, Jonathan Van Fleet. Our third guest, though, revolves throughout the show, as we talk to three Monitor reporters who covered three candidates who visited the state on Wednesday. We welcome Monitor Reporter Nick Reed here. Hi, Nick. Hi, Claire. So uh, on Wednesday, uh, Dr. Ben Carson, one of the re- now one of the Republican frontrunners for president uh, on in his party, was uh, in Exeter. So tell us a little bit about his uh, his, his appearance, his trip. Well, he spoke
1: uh, at Riverwood's retirement community um, to a room that was filled with the residents there. Um, almost so much so that all the media and anybody else who wanted to attend pretty much had to stand up um, along the edges of the room and really outside the room because it wasn't enough even to fit everyone but uh he he stuck to a lot of the points that he's been talking about for months he talks about you know the need for for unity in this country and 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 the divisiveness and Um, Spoke a lot about the the debt that the country has and how If we don't do something, it's really uh, leaving future generations um, To make to make up for
0: right but that but that being said he 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 hit some kind of divisive points himself though That's true. I mean that wasn't part of his normal speech,
1: but people um, Asked questions and and he took I, I think about five questions but the last two were both about Planned Parenthood and someone said you know they they looked to him as a world renowned doctor to uh, to weigh in on the the way that Planned Parenthood has been politicized and they were looking really for the truth um, amid all all the headlines and everything and. Um, he just launched right into it and said that uh Margaret Sanger the founder of planned parenthood or uh the predecessor to planned parenthood that she was a eugenicist and she um wanted to get rid of people like him and uh, that was what he said or or keep them under control and later at a press conference he sort of clarified what he meant by that and he said people like me meaning the black race which
0: um, that's sort of a claim that has been debunked. Well, I, I wrote a Politifact fact check about that uh, several months ago, or, or some somewhat similar claims. Um, it's something that's repeated very often by people on the, you know, people on the conservative side of things, and um, there's not really the evidence to support that. Let's put it that way. Um, any other? So, in terms of the people who are, sh- you know, kind of showing up to, I mean, obviously at a retirement home, he's going to be seeing most just regular residents there. But, you know, in terms of supporters, what kind of people was was he attracting, would you say? Um, well, it was two very different
1: crowds at the events that I went to. Of course, one was a retirement community and the other was college. Um, but at the retirement community, it, it seemed more like this was just the thing that was going on there and everybody went to attend. They weren't necessarily Ben Carson supporters. but. Um, at the college, there there were a lot of people, um, a lot of young guys. Some of them dressed up real nice. They they couldn't wait to go see Ben Carson. They were at, you know people. I got there kind of as the event was supposed to be kicking off, and it's in it was in Huddleston Hall, which is not the biggest venue at UNH, but they said that it was the biggest that the school could offer them for that time frame. And um, there was probably more than a hundred people lined up outside the building, up the stairs, waiting to get in. And eventually this group of people um, and it wasn't just college kids, it was a really diverse crowd there, but it, it, eventually they all got moved into a separate room where Carson was supposed to come after, and then after sitting in the separate room for a while, they eventually just went back out to where they'd been standing originally, mm-hmm. um, so that they could hear him speak outside, or that's what they are told, but it, re- it really was like more like a 60 cent summary of what he had said inside the closed doors <laughs> event, sure. but... Um, but yeah, the, the crowd there really mobbed him in a way that at least I haven't really seen um, yet this cycle because he they were they were lined up between him and his car, and so he had to get into the midst of this mob, and there was um, a lot of selfies, a lot of cheering, and,
0: uh, and, well, and that I mean that's what I was going to ask you is that some of the most recent polling on the Republican race now essentially has him tied. For, uh, for first place with Donald Trump. So, the, the question always with something like that is, you know, how's that reflected on the ground or not? So, it sounds like there definitely was a little bit. Yeah. And I, I specifically,
1: um, you know, in that big line, I was going up to college age kids and talking to them about what issues were kind of primary to them. And um, a lot of people talked about, they liked this message of unity um, that Ben Carson was talking about. And, and certainly, uh, that kind of draws a contrast with Donald Trump, and I will say that I talked to maybe a half dozen, um, half dozen kids and specifically asked them, you know, who, who, are, who are the top two or three candidates that you're interested in, uh, you like what they're saying right now, and nobody mentioned Trump's name, so
0: I might say awesome. something. Uh, that's interesting. Uh, did anybody mention his, um, his comments a week or two ago, Ben Carson's comments about uh, the fitness of someone who was Muslim to be, be president? Um, no, I didn't hear anybody talking about
1: that. That seemed, uh, I don't know, even the reporters, uh, the national reporters and the press gaggle there, it seemed like people had kind of moved on from
0: that. So it's interesting. John, any any other questions for Nick?
2: <clears throat> I was interested in, uh, in the difference between, uh, did, Nick, did you get a sense that he tailored his... Delivery to the audiences you mentioned the retirees and then the college kids at the University of New Hampshire So was he pretty much the same message or was or was the delivery a little different at each venue?
1: Um, I can't speak too authoritatively to that because when I got to UNH like I said I was in that overflow crowd who didn't get to see the speech So I heard the 62nd version of it, which was similar to what I had heard at Riverwood's and it was similar to what I heard um, in Manchester back in April or something when I first uh, first covered an event of his. Um, you know, he's, he's talking about, it, pe- people look to him, you know, the first question at Riverwoods was about uh, the Affordable Care Act. People are looking to him for these medical issues that are kind of big in our nation right now, in health care and Planned Parenthood. And, um, you know, he's a big advocate of uh, health savings accounts. You know, he wants, a, he says you should be able to save it up give money to your family. When you pass on, you leave that money um, to your to your descendants. And that way you take more responsibility. You realize I've got X amount of dollars. I want to save it for my kids. Um, and I don't want to go to the emergency room for every issue that I have because that costs a lot more. And he, he says, uh, we spend so much money on Medicaid anyway, that if, if people started saving for themselves, saving for their family, kind of becoming their own insurance company, and then we use that huge amount of money that we're already spending on medicaid that that'll take care of the indigent people who can't do that so
0: that's that's something he's been talking about for months interesting is, is does he seem any different like i mean you said you did you did his you went to his first event in april so in age of july i mean that's nearly six months now i mean does he does he seem particularly different on the trail or is it very very much the same He doesn't seem
1: too different. He's kind of, he's got a unique style, right? He's so quiet at at points uh, at the Riverwood. I mean, they, at one point they said, you gotta, you gotta hold the mic closer to your face. And he had it pretty close. And he like almost jokingly, like put it practically in his mouth to say like, is this good enough for you? But still, I mean, you couldn't hear what he was saying at some points. And that's not, I mean, it seems to be, that's just, who he is he's not he's not a shouting kind of guy and um that doesn't seem to have changed because it was it was the same same then same now and he's uh yeah he just he, he's not picking fights with people he he has his style it's very uh sort of friendly he's he's smiling a lot and and he just uh comes off as sort of thoughtful and um and hopeful i guess
0: great well thanks Nick
1: Thanks for having me, Clay. Yeah.
0: So we're joined by Monitor reporter Ella Nilsson. Hi, Ella. Hello. So, So on Wednesday with uh, Donald Trump uh, appearing in Keene, you were there. So tell us a little bit about uh, Donald Trump's appearance.
3: So Donald Trump uh, held a rally that was about an hour long in front of about 3,500 more, a little bit more than 3,500 people who turned out in Keene. Uh, And he talked for the full hour, which was a breakaway from his appearance last week in Rochester, New Hampshire, where he talked for a little bit and mostly took questions from the audience. This time he stuck to his talking points, which at a Donald Trump event, the talking points range very widely and kind of bounce from one thing to the next without much of a transition. Right. Um, but the, the biggest difference, so Rochester drew a lot of national headlines last week when uh, a man who is still unidentified... Uh, known only as Bill from White Plains asked Trump um, about ISIS training camps and said that that he believed that President Obama was a Muslim. Um, and Trump got a lot of backlash for not correcting him. So this time, uh, in, in Rochester also, the audience was pretty rowdy. Um, there were t- two times that sort of near definitely verbal altercations and near fights broke out. Um, this time the audience was much more subdued, uh, and I, which I think is in part to the fact that there were a lot of college students and other people that had turned out to sort of just see Trump, but in, you know, from my perspective, not a ton of Trump supporters.
0: Mm-hmm. So. Um, and uh, you know, one of the one of the things that uh, some some recent news coverage about uh, Donald Trump has focused on is his his uh, his interest in talking about the size of crowds that that come to right. his his rallies. So is this this some, was something that that continued in keen?
3: Absolutely. Yeah, he before Trump had even gone on, I think this is like every single time he has an event, the announcer will say the biggest event so far in this campaign season. Uh, you know, it's so each event is the biggest one that they've seen so far. Um, sort of keeping in that theme, the other thing that that Trump is fond of doing, and certainly uh something that was repeated in Keene was uh going over the polls that show him still as the front runner mm-hmm. um so he you know a lot of people in the national media have criticized him and saying that he's cherry picking polls that show that he is still doing the best. there was a a poll I believe was um The Wall Street Journal and NBC put out a poll earlier this week that showed Carson. Tied with Trump, um, yes. but then there are more polls that show that Carson is in second place and Trump is still the front runner.
0: Right. So it's it's very it's very important for I mean these these accoutrements of, of uh, running for president are very are very important right. to him.
2: So uh, a lot of people want they've been handing Donald Trump money to sign. So like, what is it before and after these events? As people are like going up to him and trying to get signatures, like, is this just? can't just catch can or is there like a designated time where donald is being donald for the crowd
3: i honestly i the the last couple of events i haven't seen much of him as he is is leaving it's usually this pretty crazy throng of of people trying to get to him and also media trying to get to him uh definitely in the last couple of events he has not held press conferences, so the media usually tries to glom onto him as soon as he leaves just to try to get the chance to shout a few questions. Um, I haven't seen him as he's been walking into events, but I did in Derry and then in Rochester. As he leaves, it's definitely sort of more of a, you know, yes, people sort of going up to him, this mad rush of people trying to get a picture of him. It's a huge... Uh, you know more than some of the other candidates I've seen. Obviously, he has a huge celebrity status, so that that definitely um, plays into it a lot. I haven't personally seen the signing money, but I've heard a lot about it, so I will keep my eyes peeled. I, isn't
0: isn't it isn't signing money illegal?
2: Defacing yes. money is illegal. Yeah, legal. yeah. So uh, I'm sure you've taken some. Journalistic notes on the that back of a dollar bill before. I'm not mm. sure you'd be defacing clay.
0: Well, I don't. I, I don't know. So yeah, um, because I, I actually at some point wrote a story not not for the Monitor about the, the issue of, of um, you know the, the the government gets very antsy when you deal with currency and specifically with depicting it in artistic ways and mm-hmm. stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So, but maybe Donald Trump's signature is artistic. Maybe that's maybe that's a maybe that is even a bigger problem. But anyway, go on. Well,
2: there's been discussion about who's the next person to go on the dollar, uh, ten dollar bill. Maybe Donald Trump would like to be there himself.
0: Maybe Donald Trump's signature, if he became the Secretary of the Treasury.
2: I don't know if t- Donald Trump would go for the
3: ten dollar bill so much as the hundred dollar bill. Or
0: that's yes, that's true.
2: But uh, did you have another? Qu- you had a, it seemed like you had another question for Ella. Mm. So, You you've been trying to catch up with the Trump campaign and do a day in the life of him. We just read, we all read a very interesting profile of Donald Trump in the New York Times. Monitor has been doing a series of day in the life candidate profiles. So what's that been like for you, trying to get in touch with the the Trump campaign and and follow around the Republican frontrunner?
3: So I was actually surprised at how quickly the Trump campaign got back to me when I initially emailed them and said, you know, we're doing all of these candidate profiles. We'd love to do a profile of Mr. Trump. Um, I did speak to, uh, to his spokeswoman, Hope Hicks. The problem with Trump about doing day in the life profile. So all of the other candidates do a day in New Hampshire where they have multiple campaign stops or a couple days in New Hampshire where they have multiple campaign stops. Trump does not do that. Trump, Flies in uh, to the nearest airport. I, I was thinking maybe he was flying into Manchester, but I heard yesterday that he actually flew right into Keene, the local small airport there. So he flies in, he does the event, he flies back out. There is no, There are no multiple stops of campaigning. So uh, at this point, what we are hoping to do is possibly... Travel to New York and then try to get the full day of experience of New York, New Hampshire, and then our our part of the journey might end there, and then just we'll just let Donald Trump go back to New York by himself.
0: That would be an exciting day in the life.
3: It absolutely <laughs> would be, and so far, so the New York Times magazine just put out a big profile of Donald Trump uh, this I think this past weekend. And I, you know, called Hope Hicks a couple days after and she's told me that they were not planning on doing any more day in the life. Or she said just no day in the life behind the scenes thing. So we'll see how that goes. I think my personal belief is that um, Donald Trump apparently has a reputation of being fairly candid around reporters. And I've certainly seen that at press conferences. I think what they're more concerned about is the photographs and how he looks, his actual image. Um, I think that with the day in the life things that have come out so far, the photos are always staged. There's never any behind the scenes. I personally think his campaign is not going to go for that, but we'll see.
0: Well, we'll we'll cross our fingers and hope for the best. Absolutely. well, Ella, thanks so much for for telling us about uh, the Donald's trip here.
3: Thank you for having me.
0: So hi, Casey. Hello. Uh, welcome, as usual. So, you um, you were following uh, Jeb Bush mm-hmm. in Manchester yesterday, uh, Wednesday. Mm-hmm. So he uh, went. He attended a forum on uh, substance abuse uh, issues in the state. So, uh, tell us a little bit about how uh, what Jeb did and what he heard.
4: Yeah. So um, Jeb Bush, as with other presidential candidates, has been um, taking kind of a keen interest lately in learning more about the substance abuse epidemic that is um, affecting New Hampshire. And um, some candidates have coupled this with policy proposals. But Jeb, uh, as he announced at the outset of the forum that was yesterday at Catholic Medical Center in Manchester, he said, you know, I'm not here as a candidate. I'm here to listen and learn. And Really, for the most part, he did kind of just kind of sit back and let the other people do the talking at this roundtable. He was accompanied by people um, who work in the public safety field in Manchester. Um, There was uh, David Berry from the Sullivan County Department of Corrections, and they're doing a program in their um, jail there that is geared toward providing more treatment and a better transition for people once they're nearing the end of their terms to kind of produce the recidivism rate and also get people on a good path for the long term. Um, and then there were people from Hope for New Hampshire Recovery, um, Mayor uh, Ted Gatsis, um, and some other people um, who are dealing with this in various capacities. So um Yeah. I mean, Jeb uh, offered some thoughts. He, you know, at one point was asking, he asked a lot of questions. He was asking, you know, um, do you guys have a prescription drug monitoring program? And at that point, Manchester Police Chiefs, uh, uh, Nicholas Willard, uh, sorry, I had to double check on his name. Um, but the chief responded, you know, we do, but it's not mandatory. Um, and so Jeb kind of had a look like, oh, well, you know, that would be helpful if it was mandatory because I guess Florida had a similar program that was implemented in his tenure. Mm -hmm. Um, and when Jeb, when he did talk, um, you know, he did mention that he did a lot of work on this issue as governor and looking back, doing my own research on his record, that is, you know, that's a legitimate, um, Claim that he can tout, um, you know, he oversaw the creation of, I think, a drug control um, unit drug can kind of that worked on controlling prevention, that kind of stuff. He unveiled a public um, goal of reducing uh, drug u- illicit drug use by, I think, half over a five year period in his term in office. And according to several statistics that were reported by news outlets, um During his time in office, he was, you know, pretty successful in that Mm -hmm. regard. Um, And he also has dealt with this on a personal level, Um, as he alluded to yesterday and as he was alluded to before. um, He is the father of a daughter who has struggled with substance abuse, um, made headlines for it during his time as governor. And he doesn't really get into detail about that, understandably, but has acknowledged that this is something he's had to deal with both personally and professionally. So...
0: Well, I just think it's remarkable when you when you consider that if if you were talking, you know, six, seven, eight months ago, when report when the candidates just were starting to come mm-hmm. to New Hampshire, I don't think anybody would think that you know, like, you know, substance abuse mm-hmm. issues would become kind of one of these major mm-hmm. topics for of conversation for mm-hmm. candidates on each side, and yet it's really it's really yeah. happened.
4: Yeah, I mean, I think it. I, I think to the candidates' credit. Um, They are listening to the people that they, um, you know, the people that they meet here. And also the people who are on their staffs here who have no doubt been hearing what a problem this is and who have been witnessing it firsthand as residents of the state. So, um, you know, whether there is other political motives within, you know, the candidates who are wanting to talk about this, I think that. You know, this is an issue that does need more attention and doesn't Mm -hmm. often get it on the national stage. So the people who are in the kind of recovery community in New Hampshire seem to be thankful, you know, that this is even a subject of conversation.
2: Sure. I mean, when
0: you think about like the regional differences that in in the early primary and caucus states, you know, I know that the the stereotype was always that all Iowa ever wanted to hear about was ethanol subsidies, mm-hmm. for instance. And I think one of the things about New Hampshire, New Hampshire primary and past uh, time, you mm-hmm. know, past times that it's that, that we've gone through it, at least in my experience, you know, New Hampshire seldom had like super specific issues. Mm-hmm. You know, people were kind of deficit hawks here, so you know, people mm-hmm. like McCain went over well mm-hmm. and whatnot. Steve Forbes, you know, people mm-hmm. who had very fu- Fiscally focused mm-hmm. messages, but I don't remember there being like a specific like New Hampshire or New England mm-hmm. kind of issue like that That's really kind of taken off here before. So I think that's just an interesting Interesting point um, Did Jeb, did I'm assuming Jeb had some other events yesterday, yesterday yeah, as Yeah, well?
4: I, um, I didn't attend them, but he also did a town hall I think in Bedford later on at night And that was happening at the same time that Donald Trump was having his town hall in Keene
0: um and kind of what's the what's the feeling I mean at least among the Jeb Bush people mm-hmm. I mean at this point now there are kind of dueling Republican mm-hmm. frontrunners now between uh, Donald Trump and Ben Carson mm-hmm. you know kind of what's the what's the mood in in team Bush at this point
4: Well I mean I think you know I I covered an event with um Jeb a few weeks ago and um he told me flat out and another reporter who was there like I'm going to win New Hampshire so I think it's very clear to anyone who's been following him and in contact with his staff that New Hampshire is a priority for their campaign um, and that they really have to do well here in order to have, you know, some level of success in the rest of the nominating contest. Um, But I think that, you know, I think it's safe to say that some of the luster or the initial buzz around Jeb might have dissipated a little bit um, in recent months or over the summer, partially maybe because of the Trump surge, partially because of other people who've emerged. Um, But I think that the sense that I get when you talk to people who are um, affiliated or supporters or whatever is, um, you know, again, they're playing the long game. Um, It's people who've been through this time, you know, many times before and have seen those kinds of waves come and mm-hmm. go. Um, and I think that they're focused really on primary day and sticking it out through them.
2: Right. Okay. Great. Sure. Well, I, I did want to go back to all of the conversation about um, the presidential candidates talking about drug addiction and the opiate problem in New Hampshire not to be too cynical, but I'm not sure how you can have a poor political event, a, a bad political event, if you're focused on an issue that is of great importance to a great many people. So mm-hmm. maybe they're shedding some crocodile tears here for the people of New Hampshire. Mm-hmm. Maybe they uh, have genuine concern. Mm-hmm. And Casey, you know, Jeb said that... He was there not as presidential candidate Jeb. He was there just to listen. Did you get the sense that that was real? Because it seemed like people were introducing audience members to him. Yeah, and like, I mean, how do you how do you pretend Jeb Bush is not in the room? I think at that any time
4: you're a presidential candidate in New Hampshire and you say I'm not here as a candidate, you have to kind of take that with a grain of salt. And that's he's not the first person to trot out that kind of a line. So, um, I mean. There is some element of politicking regardless, Um, but I do think that, uh, you know, there was an interest in making the focus less on him and more on the issues, and, you know, whether that was successful or not, I don't, you know, you'll have to see, but I think that there is something to be said for candidates who recognize that. They have a lot of eyes on them. There were a number of national media members who were in that room yesterday. So perhaps they, you know, called attention to this on a broader level than it otherwise would have been. You know, the New Hampshire media has been reporting on this for some time. But if this gets a little bit more attention on a national scale, then maybe that's productive. So. Mm -hmm.
0: Great. And I think we would be remiss this week if we didn't at least touch on one of the favorite topics of the New Hampshire political class and the New Hampshire media, which is the state of the New Hampshire primary.
2: Oh, I thought you were going to say the Bo-Emu.
0: Well, you know, I, I think the Bo-Emu goes without saying. Okay. Especially with the interest of the political class. But no, <laughs> talking about the, the New Hampshire primary itself, uh, the RNC chairman seemed to raise some eyebrows this week when he suggested... Well, what, what were what were his what were his comments here? He said something along the lines of, you know, all options are on the table for the next the next round of presidential nominating contest.
4: Yeah. So there was an interview that was done with the RNC chairman in National Journal, which is a Washington-based uh, kind of politics policy-focused news outlet. Um, and in that, uh, the RNC chairman, Reince, Re- Pre- Re- Reince, Priebus, Reince.
0: Prie- okay. So does anyone actually know how his name is pronounced?
4: I don't. But I, 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 I was
0: avoiding it myself. So let's just
2: I would say Rents. I would say r- r- I think
4: it's Rents Prebus.
2: Rents Prebus. Okay. I, I so... might
4: get a might get lots of reader email correcting okay. me on this. But um
2: And what do you think it is Clay?
0: I was going to say Rents maybe. That's what you say. That's what you say. Yeah. Well, we'll we'll take our we'll take our uh, chances. The are formally known as Prebus. So this was a Chairman Prebus said <laughs> So
4: um, this was a conversation about, you know, the looking ahead to beyond 2016. And um, on that subject, you know, at the, conve- at the Republican National Convention, there's often a discussion of rules and setting up kind of the, the groundwork for future elections. And the chairman had said something about, you know, if you look at my history, I've been very supportive of the early states as general counsel and as chairman. But I don't think anyone should get too comfortable and went on to elaborate on some other alternative models for nominated contests that might stand to shake things up a little bit. Um, one would be like a random lottery where they would you know, select states at random and have kind of five primary dates with 10 states voting at a time or maybe a rotating primary where you would have kind of like five quadrants of the country and they would take turns. Um, he was just throwing these out as ideas, but obviously the subtext to that is that New Hampshire, Iowa, some of the other early states could lose their spot. Um, and I think the kicker for a lot of people was this this soundbite where um, he said, I don't think there should ever be any sacred cows as to the primary process or the order, so in this context, I think it's safe to assume that New Hampshire is one of those sacred cows. So,
0: moo moo <laughs> says the sacred cow. Yes. Um,
4: so this, you know, as you can imagine, made some waves in New Hampshire, um, and people on both sides of the aisle, you know, were prompt to kind of question this, to cry this, get ready to kind of call in the cow cal- cal- Cap- cavalry, cavalry. Yes, I always screw that up. Cavalry. Yeah um to defend the primary's place um Bill Gardner who is known nationally as kind of the chief protector of the New Hampshire primary um said that you know he was surprised by these comments but he's not wasn't too worried about it because he's been through this this before um it was funny when i went to interview him i was there with a few other local reporters and noticed that he has all of these like Old newspaper comics hanging around different parts of the Secretary of State's office and all of them have various references to the past battles over the New Hampshire primary um, One of them was one about like an emergency alert system where like all voters would be called to like vote as soon as possible and get to your nearest polling place as soon as possible but
0: anyway. Well, I, th- I think part of this is frankly is, you know, anytime a major political party has lost a few presidential elections they get very antsy about how the primary process is set up, which is one of the reasons why, you know, the Democratic Party kind of drove the last round of changes when, like, Nevada was pushed up, because they had been especially unhappy, you know, with, you know, having run a couple of failed presidential runs, and they felt like, you know, Iowa and New Hampshire were not diverse enough, that this was the Democratic Party, it was the party of diversity, and and it wasn't being reflected. Well, of course, now you have two terms of Barack Obama, and there's a little less angst in the Democratic Party about that now, whereas with the Republican Party, I think, especially now that they're f- fielding a relatively diverse group of candidates, actually, you know, is having some of the same, some of the same concern.
4: Yeah, I mean, I do think it's important to emphasize that this would not affect anything for 2016. Oh no, no, this no, is all 2020, 2020 and beyond. But. Um, you know, it's still and, and a lot of the same same arguments have been made for years about questioning New Hampshire and Iowa in particular because they're not the most diverse states. They're not the most representative demographically or otherwise. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, you have people in New Hampshire, especially who will say, like, yeah, we're not the most diverse state, but we really take this seriously. And there's something to be said for that. Um, you know, we do our homework and we really you know deserve to maintain Mm -hmm. our role in the process
0: well and certainly after you know i felt like 2012 was kind of an an off year for the primary almost it wasn't a wasn't a super exciting contest but certainly this year we've seen you know new hampshire once again i mean you know the news is being made here Mm -hmm. the candidates are here and you know i and we're you're you're really seeing i think at least uh Mm -hmm. you know a real positive influence Mm -hmm. hopefully Mm -hmm. from new hampshire uh, on the contest um John, anything yes, else? Yes, and
2: you know the state parties never to leave an opportunity to launch a political attack alone. Uh, the New Hampshire Democratic Party was saying that this was all Kelly Ayotte's fault for lack of leadership within the Republican Party. You know, it's just uh, <laughs> it's very interesting how some of these news nuggets get spun.
0: Yep, it's true. Well. We will be hopefully unspinning a few more next week, but John, Casey, thanks so much for being here.
2: Thank you. Thank you, Clay.
0: Thanks for listening. Remember, you can subscribe to this podcast series through iTunes or Stitcher. And stay up to date on all of the latest political news at politics.concordmonitor.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you all next week.